This is a Media Lab podcast. Dave, don't you always just want to hit that dusty trail, find yourself in nature, and just kind of like lose yourself into the West? Am I am I allowed to bring my reactant? Because it just sounds like I'm going to have a lot of problems. Dave, when you get out into real nature, you don't need your reactant. Nature will take care of your sinuses and your allergies. By me dying of not being able to breathe in hives. Well, I'm ready. That sounds yeah. good. Nature uh, finds a way, Dave. <laughs> on a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone, especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. My name is Kyle. I'm Dave. And I'm The Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse, and then another apocalypse happened. Somehow it's used its powers to transport us across time and space, so now we're on our way back to Earth. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be talking about the movie Wild Rovers. Sounds exciting. William Holden and Ryan O'Neill are the Wild Rovers. Just a couple of cowboys. They work hard. They play hard. I'm really getting drunk. Congratulations. They fight hard. Thanks, Dave. Don't mess it, Ross. As someone who very often mixes up his W's and R's. It's an awful title for me to like really focus in on and make sure I say it right. Riled Wovers. Of course, a big thank you to our patrons, Green Girl YYC, and It's a Conspiracy Podcast. Dave, this is a movie, a Western movie. It seems like we're in a, a chunk of Westerns that the machine is forcing us to watch. This is a movie, though, directed by Blake Edwards. So I thought it might be a good chance for us to talk a little bit about our history with him as an auteur, your favorite word. Is he? I mean... Well, he made a ton of movies. Yes. and Over 40-some uh, years. He married uh, Julie Andrews. Married Julie Andrews so for 41 of those years. That's really so. good. Uh, that's a big mm -hmm. win for him. Uh, Adopted two kids with her. Yeah, Vietnamese. I mean, that might... I mean, I didn't look into it too carefully, but that's probably a sign of the times that we're interested in, because that was in the mid-70s, as I found out. Yeah. You know what's funny? When you brought it up and you were talking about Pink Panther, I didn't realize he did Breakfast at Tiffany's too, which is, mm -hmm. uh, I don't like that movie. I mean, the racism aside, I just, I don't find that movie that funny, frankly. No, it's so hilarious to me. We've been stuck on this spaceship, but we have had the opportunity to do like these hologramic uh, FaceTime chats with people. And I was talking with my parents and they did the same thing. It was on Netflix and they were like, well, we haven't watched Breakfast at Tiffany's before and let's watch it. And they both hated it. It's <laughs> they both did not like it's it. It's depressing. And it, 
Yeah. You know, it's one of the, it's, maybe this is a sign of the times, you know, 60s, 70s, like there's not a single likable person in that film. Like, I, I mean, Audrey Hepburn has her mystique because she's Audrey Hepburn, but she's annoying too because the character is an awful human being. There's, there's, I don't know. I, so this is my reading on that type of stuff. I think this like moral judgment that we place characters in is a very current thing. Mm. I, I really do think people are going much more for like, banter and like situations and stuff and they didn't really care if characters were characters well maybe not back then not not in the early 60s and 50s and 40s there's going to be those extenuating circumstances and i think the the art that survives from that time that people actually still engage with like a casablanca and citizen kane and those types of things are kind of the outliers of the situation and most things were just like was there a monster that showed up in the third act did this situation was it funny to us here in 1940 they didn't really care about character arcs or if they were quote-unquote good people well yeah good people you know i was just listening to that the other thing i was thinking about i i don't know if i agree with that necessarily in its entirety your statement that they didn't care about it but i think maybe it comes from writing uh from rich white people's perspectives that these are people they actually know so it's like you have this gold digger in in uh new york city that is not a story I get, I care about. I don't care that she comes from poverty or whatever. I can't remember the the premise. And then she tries to hit it big and finds not even love, just whatever a taxi. Who cares? You know, it's like I I personally just don't get it. But like Helen kind of likes that movie, and you know, different people are going to read uh, plot and morality and uh, personal interest in different films. Mm-hmm. Um, but as has become a fairly boilerplate thing for us this year. <laughs> I just, I need something well, that's going to titillate my brain, right? I need, yeah. Sure. Well, I Personally, mean. Personally, right? Uh, you, you say that, you want your, your brain to be, to be working and then you watch McCabe and Mrs. Miller and don't like that movie. So, <laughs> I, I, what do you actually want, Dave? Well, I didn't, you know, the, the rating went up. The rating went yeah. up. I was open to hearing about the context mm-hmm. afterwards. But, and that's another thing we're learning is, uh, you know, kind of to your point, this is an era where the films required more context and they weren't yeah. just trying to splash special effects in your face. So, For sure. Um, um, I, I, just before we go too far away from it, because there is one other thing that I wanted to pick up on. You only agreed with part of what I said, and I only agree also with part of what you said. <laughs> just kiss already. Which is, I, I still push back on the idea of like, well, I don't have that background, so I can't care about these people or can't, can't care about these actors. Uh, can't care about these characters. I I do agree with the fact that like old Hollywood and I mean, honestly for a very long time it was rich white people who were writing those stories. So it's like okay, this is a very specific point of view it's coming from. But you know, I take a look at other things like I have no basis in reality of what it was like to be a samurai, but I love Kurosawa samurai films. But I have no idea what it's like to be I don't know, someone like hitting out in the open west and opening up a brothel, but I still had something that I could glom onto for last week's movie. So I don't know if I need to have the exact same life experience to sympathize with a character. I, but I think that's where not just auteurs, good storytelling comes into play. So for example, Kurosawa is not the only person making samurai movies. Sure. And uh, Mr. Uh, sorry, McCabe and Mrs. Miller is not the only Western ever made. It's one great film in a fucking ocean of garbage right 
Sure, and, sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think maybe that's the thing with selective memory it, you know, and coding, really. I've been thinking a lot about this word coding. You know, if you uh, love, let's uh, going back to Breakfast Tiffany's, if you love the concept and the mystique of Tiffany's as a jewelry empire, or yeah. um, that I, I don't, I don't even know what fashion era that is, but uh, who, who did, is it Coco Chanel that, no, uh, fuck. Audrey Hepburn has one designer that she collaborated with. Sure. So her outfits and everything. So if you're into that, then there's a code because you can appreciate the film on that level. For you, uh, opening a brothel and owning horse is something that you connect with personally, apparently. Of yes, yeah. of course. Yeah. <laughs> Been there, done that. Yeah. Um, but when you, you know, when you don't have that bridging thing, it's, it's, it's difficult. And that's why a Kurosawa's films, you don't need to know what it's like to be Japanese or a samurai. He works on, you know, like really base human questions. Like I watched High and Low. I was crying mm -hmm. at the beginning because, you know, what would I do if someone kidnapped my son? You know, right, and you're right. just like, okay, that is a real problem. <laughs> you don't have to be a rich Japanese industrialist to understand how difficult, you know, this problem is. So that's why I think I also can watch different cultures films and get caught up in it. But often I have trouble with some cultures films because uh, I don't understand the code and the language. And then ultimately, you know, what they're trying to express to me, I'm like, ah, um, I don't know. Uh, sure. I mean, you just made a very like human and empathetic uh, point there. And all I was thinking about was Toshiro Mifune is so hot back yes. then. <laughs> oh, he, and you know, if never mind being an auteur, if you get to have Mufune in every film, you're doing okay. You're starting at like a fifty, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, what, I know exactly. <laughs> I just need you to stand here, and it's going to immediately make this movie better. What happened to Muses, Kyle? I feel like that mm. era's gone too. I mean, there's a lot of great yeah, I'm, actors, but it's different now. Well, I'm trying to think. Like the the closest that I have seen in recent years is like. Wes Anderson using Saoirse Ronan in like the last five of his movies. And that's the last time like, oh, and uh, apparently Timothy Chalamet and Greta Gerwig, they've now made three films together. Yeah. But like, that's the only thing I can think of that's even close. But yeah, you had Scorsese and like Robert sure. De Niro, like for the 70s. And then he did his like yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio run and stuff like that. But yeah, it doesn't really happen much anymore where it's actor and director get paired up and like just go on a run of movies together. Maybe something's bubbling because we're in it right now and, you know, in 10 yeah. years we'll look back and go, like, oh, you know, they were always like, connected. Of course, yeah. Anyways, we're really off track. So No, I think it's, it's on track because this is probably going to be the most interesting thing to talk about <laughs> for this movie we're about to jump into. I know Blake Edwards primarily because of the Pink Panther movies. Uh, my parents showed me those a little bit too young. Like I was not even 10 years old. I don't think. Just, uh, shrugging, me, like, like, is this funny? It was like, is this funny? Like, I don't get it. I don't understand it. And then I returned back to them in my teenage years. I'm going to say 16, 17 and loved a shot in the dark. I thought that was one of the funniest movies I had ever seen. I, but you have like a master of like physical comedy and faces and like voice work in Peter Sellers. Having watched most of the Pink Panther movies, like the first two are like the, I say the good ones. Mm -hmm. And then by the end, you have like three awful ones. The ones that come in like the 80s and 90s, like these are unwatchable. <laughs> these are not good at all. So that's really my only frame of reference for Blake Edwards. I think of him as a comedy director. But having researched a little bit here this week, he kind of jumped back and forth between like drama, comedy, drama, comedy. He kind of didn't stay in one lane. 
for, for very long. I'd like you to stay in your lane so that I could run you over. Got an honorary Oscar in 2004. Good. I, I remember that ceremony because uh, he came out in a, in a wheelchair uh, and then accidentally fell off the stage. Oh. He, <laughs> As a pratfall being fighting. He had a bit. He had a bit that he came out good, with. Good work. So I guess that is time then that we segue to tell we you could... that we are going to go thank some sponsors. And then when we come back, we'll be talking about Wild Rovers. We could talk about other stuff for a little bit because I, I don't want to. I don't want to talk about this movie. Boy, cannot wait to hit that old dusty trail, Dave. Just go into the plains of the desert and just keep on walking and walking and walking. Are you, I mean, the only question I have is, are you, are you riding saddle or are you riding bareback in the back? Because we're going to have mm. to share this mule. Yeah, that's the, that's the unfortunate thing because I do have this puppy dog I also picked up. So I now have some diamonds and... This useless dog, dog Dave. shit, really, all over the inside mm. of your vest. No one knows what we're talking about. But, uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's all right. right. We haven't watched the movie yet. We we will get to the movie in no time. What I should really tell you about here, though, is that Colin Dave versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. You know, this episode of Colin Dave vs. the Machine is brought to you by the Calgary Foundation, proudly supporting community needs for 65 years. Just think about this being like a black screen, Dave, you know, when the movie has started and some words flash on the screen. Empathy, kindness, generosity. Three words that are probably not going to be applied to a review of this movie. But we are united in our desire to give, to inspire, hope, and transform the lives of people who are struggling in turbulent times. And the Calgary Foundation is here to help. From mental health programs to environmental causes, the Community Knowledge Center website features profiles of charitable organizations, all searchable by area of interest. Be inspired by compelling stories. Be informed of innovative work. Be responsive to the needs. To connect to hundreds of outstanding charitable organizations serving our community, visit ckc.calgaryfoundation.org. And to learn more about the Calgary Foundation, visit calgaryfoundation.org. Do you think people can tell how much I flail my arms during these ad reads? <laughs> they can hear the, the cloth, the cloth the wiping cloth against the... Um, I, when you said flail your arms, I, I just I thought of Kermit the Frog. Yeah. Wah! Let me tell you about a different podcast, Kyle. Well, Oh. Is that okay? How dare yeah, you? I know. I really like to do this. <laughs> so, The Future of Podcast, which is hosted by Todd Hirsch, ATB Financial's Vice President and Chief Economist. The Future of Podcast has launched its second season by connecting with industry leaders to uncover what's on the horizon for the things that mean the most to you. The Future of Podcast promises to give you insights to help navigate what is often an uncertain future. I'm just I'm suddenly realizing we're turning off our protocols and stopping the test. Can we do that? Talk about COVID? No, let's move on. I'm just, I, it's eating up my consciousness in, in, right in now. Space, <laughs> listen, in space, uh, COVID doesn't we, exist. We sneeze out into the sub-zero. Thing. Absolute zero. Yeah. Explore how our economy and communities can not only brace for change, but embrace the opportunity it creates. Subscribe to The Future Up in the Apple Store, Google Play, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found. Or connect with us at atb.com slash the future of. Is it a backslash slash backslash? Just say slash. Just think of guns. I was going to say, you add in a little. All right, Dave, we 
to spend almost two and a half hours watching this uh, Western movie. Lay it on me, I guess. What uh, were your initial thoughts on this movie, Wild Rovers? I don't know. I think I was quipping to you that this is the million dollar duck of Westerns and you're pushing back Ludicrous. a little bit. Ludicrous. Yeah. Uh, it's not good. I'm just going to say that. It's not good. Well, I think what I meant by that is, you know what is offensive about million dollar duck? Is that because it's everything? Yeah, because it's trying to be comedy. It's so out that it, you know, you're reminded every time you think of something, you can see a stupid yeah. face or a shitty bit that didn't work. And I skipped half the movie, and I still remember garbage from that. This movie is playing on the trope of a western. So westerns are notoriously long and drawn out, and this thing mm-hmm. does that too much. It's I yeah. have no idea what's going on, and I don't think anyone cares. Well, that's the worst part of it is that. I, I, I know what's going on, but I don't care what's going on. <laughs> the thing is here, this is why I'm pushing back a lot with this statement that this is like a million dollar duck level of bad. Million dollar duck is uh, an assault on everything. It has bad direction, <laughs> bad writing, bad acting, bad production design, everything, even bad special or uh, sound effects. Like I just hate everything about that movie so much. And this movie, at the very least, and I'll go into it when I talk about it, there's three things that I like. I can at least point to at least three things that I actually liked about the movie right. in what is otherwise a really boring affair. And at the halfway mark, I'm like, Oof, there's another hour and a half of this, and I don't know if, yeah. if I really want to go through with it. But it's like, if, if I was given the choice, if like I had rubbed the genie's lamp or I don't know. I'd fallen down a well, and the only way to get out was either you have to watch Million Dollar Duck once or watch Wild Rovers every day for a year. I would watch this for a year. <laughs> All right, that's a little loaded. What if, what if it was just one for one? You know, would you rather watch what's million? Is Million Dollar Duck like two? If it's an hour long, I can't remember. It's like an hour and a half. I okay, think. so ninety minutes of garbage versus no. I, two I would and literally half, rather watch this movie again. Two and a half hours you spend in the yes. well. Because I actively was like, upset, hating. yeah, yeah. <laughs> upset. Well, like, I turned it off, digging my fingernails into the <laughs> into the mattress. I was like so angry. Every boyfriend Kyle has has said the same thing about him. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Unlike, I mean, I finished this movie, but by the last third, I was scrubbing because some of mm. those travel sequences. Like, oh, I, I thought, know. I'll come back and I'm like, did I miss something? Because I just skipped like two minutes. No, you did not. Yeah, you and didn't. I come back. I'm like, nope. They were just. Riding this fucking donkey. If, 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 if people have not seen this movie, which you probably have not, because it's not, there's no information about this movie really anywhere on the internet that you can find. No. They do that thing with certain long movies. It was like very gone with the wind, I felt, oh, where yeah. it's like you have your entrance music, oh, you have God. your intermission, you even have exit, you have exit music yeah. at the very end of this movie. So it's very much trying to present itself and position itself as like this very ornate, epic, important movie. After the intermission, there is, I'm, I'm not even, I'm, I'm trying to be like realistic here. There is, I think, a 45 second to minute long sequence I actually really liked. And the rest of it is them. It really just feels like they're just traveling on horse. I'm like, I get it. You can like just get to the, <laughs> get to the next plot point. I don't care about you traveling anymore. You know, what I can't believe, you know, learning that this movie was disowned by Blake Edwards because the studio oh, yeah. cut an hour out of it. If yeah. you're the studio head and you cut an hour out, why not cut the on track and intermission and yeah, exit like music? That's, why that's leave the that bizarre in? thing. It's like, if you're trying to make this shorter and more palatable, like why have the intermission at all then in that case? I, I have a theory 
on what was cut out because it doesn't I, like, unless you found what was actually no. cut out because I couldn't see anywhere where anything said this are these are the scenes that were actually cut out of the movie. Boy, could this have been a 90 minute movie like you yes. could have cut this even more if you wanted to. My theory is that there's those kind of two gang members that are introduced at the beginning, don't show up for like an hour of the movie and then kind of come back at the end to like be tr- like tracking our two quote unquote heroes. I have a feeling you had way more with them mm. is what my guess is, is that they kept going back to their journey and what was going a, on with one them. more story arc that was going to twist together. Because it cares? feels like they're supposed to be more important in the story. But they, again, you are introduced to like this sheep herding family. You have these characters show up, the two brothers, Carl Molden and Tom Skerritt. And then they kind of disappear again, show up in about in the halfway point, disappear again, and then are trailing our heroes then at the very end. And it's like, I don't know. It just seems weird to even include these people at all. Even uh, if, if they weren't supposed to be more important. Yeah. I, I mean, if that's not the whole hour, like they throw in this random i mean the whole heist is not even heist the whole uh, crime is so stupid but they throw that two minute existential argument about the wife needing the money you know Mm. so you get this feeling maybe there was supposed to be more around there that we can understand why a bank manager's wife you know or like even the value of a dollar because she's talking about how it takes 30 years to save up two thousand dollars right it's like what are you saving it up for because you know if you're planning to be 30 years in the old west you're probably dead you've probably shit yourself no, yeah, yeah absolutely um i mean everything about this is belabored you know i, I agree i don't know if there's any way to actually save this movie because i think that even if it was shorter there's actually a central problem to this movie that you wouldn't be able to fix with that so let me get into that for me this feels like blake edwards was trying to make butch cassie and the sundance yes kid. Yes. And failing at it at every level <laughs> because, uh, and I'm going to get into it. I love William Holden. Like I, he is one of my favorite, like old Hollywood actors, him and Ryan O'Neill, in my opinion, have absolutely no chemistry. Not together. awful together. Yeah. It's just Ryan and O'Neill. It, it, and Ryan it also O'Neill's... blows my mind reading contemporary reviews and being like, they're great together. I'm like they aren't though. Like uh, you, two years ago, you saw Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. How can you tell me that there's good chemistry between these two people? Anyways, I just don't think they have any chemistry together, and I think that's the central problem. If you want this to be feel fun and lively, you need two characters that can play off of one another. I think honestly, William Holden is legitimately great in this movie. I think he brings gravitas to it. He's the old cowboy. I went down a huge Wikipedia rabbit hole. Because they make the joke where he says, like, I'm 40. Well, actually, I'm 50. I'm like, bullshit. You're like 65. And they had to look it up like, oh, no, you're 51 when you made this movie. Yeah, it's like, the 70s. You look, We've learned you this. Look, yeah. I know, but it's like, you look so old, man. And he died in 10 years after this. So there you go. If, it's, if it, the average smoking rate is like two cartons of cigarettes a day. Oh, I know. And all of these people turn out to have and probably drinking like drinking whiskey and, yeah, and like, like this is what happens. Problems. I think William Holden legitimately is fantastic. I love the music in this movie. Jerry Goldsmith would go on to write scores for a ton of great movies. Um, And I do think if this act, like I think the photography is legitimately stunning as well in many scenes. I mean, it's kind of hard to be in some of those locations and not make a good (laughs) shot out (laughs) of it. I think if this was also ever done, like the carnal knowledge, like remaster that we saw, which was like, boy, this movie looks great. We would probably say the same thing. Like this movie looks great. 
Those are the three things I like. I think Ryan O'Neill, on the other hand, is con- entirely miscast in this movie. I actually don't think he's very good in this movie he's at all. In this movie, yeah, and apparently an awful person. Oh, he's an awful human being too. Like I know a little bit about him and the way he treated his daughter. Um, and I think didn't he cross paths with um uh Sybil Shepherd? Didn't he cross paths with Sybil Shepherd for a know. while too? Yeah, and. I mean, there's anyway, stories. One of his sons says he offered him cocaine at 11 yeah, years old. He's an awful yeah. trash human being. He yeah. is also happens to be in three movies that are on my like shame list that I have not seen. <laughs> one being What's Up, Doc, which is Barbara Streisand's first movie. Paper Moon, which is considered to be one of the best movies of all time, which I'm not, which stars his daughter, and she won the Academy Award, and he mm-hmm. got pissed off at her and didn't talk did. to her for yeah. a few days. Yeah. And then. Um, Barry Lyndon, the uh, Stanley Kubrick film, which has no artificial light. He only uses natural light in that movie is the big selling point. Jordan. Jordan will like that one a lot. Yeah. So, like, maybe he's great in those movies. I don't know. Haven't seen them, unfortunately. If I'm Because I'm only basing it. This is the first Ryan O'Neill performance I've seen. I thought he was awful. Yeah. I really did not like him at all in this movie whatsoever. It's like Billy Jack level. He, he should mm. not have been an actor. He's so distracting. The character is not written well, or maybe he just doesn't perform it, but right, to yeah, go something. from like the two. naive idiot to like psychopath to gunslinger to caring for a puppy, like what what was going on mm-hmm. with this character? I didn't understand any of it. And yeah. uh, I honestly think it's a, a little bit of the McCabe thing again, where he is a bit of a coward and like supposed to be like, oh, I just like animals and like. I just want to go on this trip. I, I'll rob the bank, but I don't have to kill anybody because of it. But again, yeah, he just doesn't have the, the Warren Beatty charisma to pull off that character. Well, and I don't know. I mean, I can understand when you say it that way, but like that whole sequence when he's holding the wife and the grandma and the child hostage, mm-hmm. I mean, he just come. I mean, maybe, and again, this might be Ryan O'Neill because as we learn, he might actually be a sociopath. He, <laughs> right. he looks awful. Like he looks super creepy because it's not, he doesn't look like a coward. The parts where he's aggressive, he's like, it looks like he's going to murder them regardless of the mm-hmm. outcome of the whole fucking thing. But at the same time, he's stroking a puppy and talking about its teats. You know, it's it's really <laughs> right, weird, right. man. It's It doesn't work. It's Well, I, I think that's the other thing is that, again, this is the Blake Edwards hand in this. There are a few scenes that I think are supposed to be played for comedy. Uh, you know, comedy all depends on timing. And I think that they're... The timing is off there. I will. I will. I'll say there is one one line that actually made me laugh out loud. And it was the only line in the entire movie that made me laugh out loud. It's when they're at that uh, farm and the little mm. puppy needs to drink the milk from the cat, blah, blah, blah. And uh, William Holden says, I make it a point never to argue with an animal lover. And I thought that was actually a really fun, like <laughs> insightful line in, in, in a way. Uh, and he, he's able to perform it well, but it's, um, there's a, there's another line too that is, it's not like funny. It's just one of those like, oh, I appreciate your, your, your witticism, which is when they're having the bath and they're like, Ryan O'Neill asks, what are the poor folks doing? And then William Holden says, without, I think that there's attempts here at being like a profound Ryan. and be funny, mm-hmm. but it's like, it's most of it doesn't, doesn't work, work for me. No. If you want to spend the better part of almost three hours with, what is it, like a five-minute montage of them breaking a wild horse? Oh, I was going to wait to talk about this, but we need to talk about that scene. What a bonkers. (laughs) Like, I think it was longer than five minutes. It felt like it went on for a while. Yeah. For them breaking that horse. (laughs) What's the point? And A, 
talk, we this is another recurring theme talking about how people did not give a shit about animals oh, in the seventies. They One, definitely killed a bunch of animals in this film. Oh, definitely they actually shot those sheep. I'm pretty sure. Secondly, I'm pretty sure they threw that cougar onto a real horse. Yep. And third, they're really breaking that horse. Yep. So like they're they're really like. Although the uh, the if you notice the ropes keep changing positions yep. on the horse, which kept throwing me off a little bit. But. Yeah, it was weird like to throw a lasso from a mule and then have it wrapped around the torso of a horse. Like, right, did he exactly. jump through uh, it? The cougar thing is so de- like why did that happen? Other than to kill the horse for the plot, it's so stupid yeah. because. If you've shot at a cougar, they're not sticking around to hunt no. you down after that. That is not how animals work. The whole thing's so dumb. Came out of nowhere. And then not they do unless the... you are like Davy Crockett, because then you can <laughs> shoot a bear and a cougar with one bullet. Yeah, but if they'd killed a cougar, I'd be like, all right, you know, that's fine. It's stupid, but I can live with that. Wear it as a hat like Hercules, but uh, right. that is not what happened. They just conveniently threw a cougar onto an actual horse, filmed mm-hmm. it, and then had them ride uh, bareback together. I'm always down to ride anyone bareback. The, the thing about it is this, is that I could envision there being a movie where I'd be like, yeah, let me see them ride even longer. If I get into like the vibe of a movie, sometimes I just don't care. It's like, oh, it's beautiful. Like I enjoy the music or like the thing. But again, if the central relationship between our two characters is such where like, I just don't feel like you have any chemistry whatsoever. It's just like, this is a bit of a slog because I see two actors on a horse just going and going and going and not really doing anything of interest. I, I think this is the thing about coding and plot. I mean, I know uh, we talked last week about the overemphasis of plot in, mm-hmm. m- in film, maybe not in movies. Movies, maybe we can make a distinction between the two. I have no idea. To your point, like if you think about, I don't know, Unforgiven or uh, what's another one that's very slow? I if I mean, we, I would even go with like the remake of True Grit, like the Coen right. brothers did. Although that had a little bit of a, yeah, a better pacing. But sure, you know, if there's a reason for the journey, other than some contrived shit where they kidnapped a banker. So I, I didn't even understand why they did it. They just didn't want to be poor. And like you said, you, you need chemistry between the two leads. Otherwise, what are you really shoot, shooting? The idea of like a slow trek, the frontiersmanship of the West is important to that narrative. So, you know, I'm willing to accept that there's going to be a 15 minute montage with a setting sun and cacti and like, you know, uh, whatever, not Badlands, but whatever it is that's typical for all that stuff. I'm surprised they didn't throw at least one First Nations indigenous savage to attack them because I thought that sure. maybe they cut that out. Who knows? Maybe, yeah. Yeah, because that's a trope in this era. Uh, this one... It's it's not you said it's well shot. It's not even well shot. It's like weird things I cut together, and they're like trotting down a, a hill, and then they're trotting up another one, and then they're trotting down another one, and then there's a pan for like a sunset, and then they're yeah, trotting. I think there's up. enough framing that that works for me. He's playing a lot with like foreground, <laughs> midground, background. Like he he knows how to like actually like set up a camera so you can see what is going on in the action. Yeah. I, at least his DP did, but um, well, yeah, about yeah. The, fair enough. You know, maybe this is the Pink Panther mindset, like the idea of a shit sheriff who's a crack shot shooting through a door because he doesn't want to wake up. You know, like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of really strange moments that occur in this that I had trouble sitting down with. Like the sheriff is an interesting thing. He's like this very realistic sheriff. Like he's like almost kind of like a town drunk. He's got uh, power imbued on him, but he doesn't really 
care about enforcing the law in the way that we worry about now. He's not a totalitarian or as you used, like a fascist uh, right. in previous episodes. Uh, and then he has that scene where he's got to calm down the two. I think they're the, I mean, you're talking about how they're just two random, but they're his sons, right? Like the rancher's sons, the two crazy guys that hunt. I sure. think they're his sons. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. he like shoots the guy's hat off. So you know he's a very good gunslinger. And so you get this tension building and be like, oh, well, now they're going to form a posse and go after. And then he's just like, you know what? I give up. I don't want to do this anymore. And he's out of the movie. Right. You know, it's, it's so weird. Anymore. You know, what, what, why put that much energy into setting him up? He had probably the most character depth, you know, out of anybody in this film. Well, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, why go through all these hoops? You setting up the cameras, bringing the actor on set. It's just like, oh, by the way, I'm just not going to be in the rest of the movie. It's like, well, then. Just don't be in the movie then i guess at that point <laughs> or yeah, just, just, yeah it feels give him weird. less screen time you know he, he uh, whoever that actor i didn't look it up but the sheriff's quite good in this film actually he i i think he's kind of like keeping it buoyed up uh for me as a as a real western for the first whatever mm -hmm. it felt like three hours but maybe it's 20 minutes of this film but yeah as soon as he's written off i hate the sons like i i cannot understand why they're written are they supposed to be mentally disabled are they just uh overindulged I, I don't understand why they're so psychopathic well the one guy is you know quick to anger and he's chasing down shooting at prostitutes i i, I just didn't understand that character i think all. that's also a bit of a western trope right you yeah. have your loose cannon character that comes into town but stupid dave is the loose cannon of this podcast well let's do this let's go through some backstory here there's not going to be a lot of it <laughs> so wild rovers was released on June 23rd, 1971. It is currently rated 6.5 on IMDb, which by IMDb standards means this is garbage. And then it, there's no available rating on Metacritic. On Rotten Tomatoes, from 14 critics, it's at 57%. And then from 100 plus users, which is very low, but they give it 44%. Not very well liked over on Rotten Tomatoes. It is available on DVD and Blu-ray. There is a Blu-ray release of this movie. Uh, you can also buy or rent it on iTunes, buy or rent it on YouTube, and in Canada, at least where we are, there is not a place for you to just stream it. Talk about there not being a lot of information, I could not find either the budget or what this movie made, so I just don't know. Its plot description, though, is, tired of cow punching for a living, two Montana cowboys rob a bank, <laughs> rob a bank and flee, but their employer's sons chase after them. Is that still a term in use? cow punching is it no although i have no i don't think so although i will say they at the beginning of this movie use the term jughead yeah more than once do you know what a jughead is dave i looked it up it's like slang for an idiot right yeah yeah so you're like as uh as uh you know dumb as a mule or like as well, uh this was the, the thing, thing at the beginning which is why i started wondering if the sun are they referring to the sons are they referring to the horse that kills the ranch mm. hand like i couldn't understand why they kept saying jughead and then yeah. the one son, is it Tom Skerritt? He's acting so insanely. I thought maybe he's supposed to be like an idiot. Like maybe that's part of the story and it wasn't, but it, right. it was weird. And there was an, I, I had to look up another one. They were using a different slang term. Was it cow puncher? Chippy, which Chippy? means yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, hooker. But I thought it might be racist. Like I couldn't understand why they kept me like, oh, I've got a brand new chippy. I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? Uh, the first time I Googled it, it said You need like chips. a little glossary dictionary with you watching these movies sometimes. Like, what does I, this mean? I think too. I mean, I don't know if 
it was closer in the 70s for cow talk, but a lot of the slang and the uh, vocabulary was starting to throw me off because, I, again, maybe this is the norm, but I felt like they were overstressing all the contractions maybe. in like, you I, know, the Western I have tongue. A, my sense, and again, I not that I am like the deepest, the, I don't have the deepest knowledge of like John Wayne Westerns, but I wonder if that that, yeah, that is like an, an involvement of that where... My Gardner. grandpa, who loved Western movies, would just know this like by second nature. Like, yeah, of course, that's what they mean. I've seen like 40 films. I've used this term before. So, yeah, it's totally plausible. It's not like it's hard to understand. It's not like a foreign language, but it got on my nerves a little bit by the end because, I mean, what's the point? You can speak English without. It'll be over, like, you know, your son in 20 more years watching a movie from the 90s he's like why does everyone say that they're fly they're flying in this movie <laughs> um what else do we want to talk about why are they calling them cholos <laughs> <laughs> oh just to, on the budget uh, and okay. again i don't know the number but blake edwards has a has a water world the, the movie he met julie andrews apparently is credits nearly bankrupting paramount it costs oh, seven one was, uh, days of wine oh, and days of wine and roses. Yeah, I was going to yeah. mention that. Yeah, yeah. It has uh, Jack Lemon in it too. It is famous. Yeah, seventeen million dollars. Seventeen million dollars. That's a lot of money in that era. Yeah. yeah. So that was the water world. So maybe this movie is the same thing. I mean, the way that they move through so many different uh, mm -hmm. sequences, how many animals they had to kill. I I bet that this thing costs more than they want you to know. Maybe that that's what we should do between seasons this year is review movies that almost bankrupted studios because <laughs> you have like cleopatra you have uh days of heaven you have a bunch of these movies it's like yeah this one either almost or did bankrupt an entire <laughs> movie studio great for them yeah well you know auteurs they, they, yeah, yeah. they do as they please so this film stars william holden as ross bodine which i just have to say great name like ross bodine brian o'neill as frank post tom scarrett as john buckman as I said, William Holden, one of my favorite actors, of course, in Sunset Boulevard, which is one of my favorite movies, is also in Network, also one of my favorite movies. So I, I know I'm, I'm, Streetcar. I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm in bed with, uh, with William Holden is, is what it comes down to. But what do you have to say about these actors? Well, I think first and foremost, I will tell our listeners that I got a text from Kyle and it wasn't about the movie. And it wasn't about anything. He just asked me, have you read about how William Holden died? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not fun. So, so uh, we'll, we'll start there. I mean, basically, he's a raging alcoholic and... Mm -hmm. uh, Best guess, friends with uh, President Ronald Reagan. Yeah. There's a picture of him at his wedding. Did he... Mm -hmm. Was he I his think best, he was best man? man. Yeah, yeah. Good for him. And, uh, the, and to be fair, this was actor Ronald Reagan, pre-presidential. Whoa, 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 whoa. The actor became president? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, like we already had a Trump, didn't we? And so he uh, got drunk, hit his head, fell, hit his head on something. And the coroner suggests he may have been conscious as he bled out to bled death out, in yeah. a hotel. <laughs> Thank yeah, you, Yeah, it's Kyle. not fun. The report that I read subtly suggests, and, and again, this is all conjecture. Who knows? Like, that's just awful uh, on the face of it. Like, you trip, fall, break. You know, slice your head open, bleed out to death. The article that I read subtly suggests that he may have had lung cancer. So yes. this may have been a suicide attempt. Like suicide 
attempt gone by right, bashing, I guess. I don't know. By bashing yeah. your own face on the floor. I mean, if you're going to go anyway, every time I see a depiction of hanging yourself, I just think like in a film, I'm like, I don't know yeah. if I would choose that. That's just... It's a lot of work. It's a lot, a lot of work. work. Uh, I'd Where rather I just slip, rope? get really drunk and slip on something. Um, he's Yeah, he's pretty interesting. He, uh, I thought for a second he was on Streetcar Named Desire, but maybe I'm thinking of somebody else. Yeah, Who cares? I think you are. Uh, he was in Bridge on the River Kwai, which is actually a fantastic one, yeah. film. That's a great movie too. Uh, and in the spirit of wokeness, he was in a film uh, co-starring a Chinese actress uh, called The World of Susie Wang in 1960. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That was a Hollywood-Hong Kong uh, collaboration. Uh, she's an American actress, but I think that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. That's really it. Oh, he got an Oscar in Stalag 17. Have you heard of that? Yeah. It's um, one of the war pictures, Stalag uh, 17. No, yeah. I've never watched it. Yeah. Ryan O'Neill. Piece of shit. Piece like, of I, shit. He's an awful person. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I feel, again, I think I mentioned this in our uh, last picture show episode, but uh, Peter Bogdanovich, who directed that movie, his wife at the time, Polly Platt, helps his first three movies, which includes Paper Moon, very instrumental in his career, would go on and like be the forebearer of so many careers. Anyways, they do an episode all about Paper Moon and learning more about Ryan O'Neill was like this person is the worst <laughs> like just the worst so I maybe I'm influenced a little bit by the podcast no I mean I'm just reading these bios but like all of the quotes about him are talking about how he blames the world that he wasn't the biggest star in Hollywood that's a problem like blames his own daughter for, for that too well the really cases. fucked up thing too is Apparently, so he became estranged from his family and his uh, daughter, and he's got four kids with Farrah Fawcett, um, to the point where when he attended Farrah Fawcett's funeral, he didn't recognize Tatum O'Neill, and he tried to hit on her. Yeah. That's gross, dude. Like, you got got problems. We kind of subtly mentioned that his one son uh, basically has been in some article blaming him for his own problems because at 11 he apparently told his son he had to try cocaine which is a fucking weird anecdote but the other i mean just to prove that these are not just gossipy things his other son and uh, and ryan apparently were like coke buddies and oh he boy. ended up in jail for armed robbery and kidnapping and all this kind of shit so uh didn't work out he's not a nice person and described often as a sociopath and just to top it off, he's a shitty actor, man. He's so bad in this movie. And yeah, he's involved with a lot of big name films. But there's a reason, I think, other than his personality, that he does he disappears in the 80s. Um, mm-hmm. I haven't seen Barry Lyndon yet, but I can imagine immediately what he'll be like, which is exact like this, but with a wig and wearing, a, you know, 18th century English or 19th century English, English clothing. And yeah. that'll be it because he cannot act. He's awful. He looks like someone who has no human emotions. And it turns out he does not. He does not. I love Tom Skerritt. I love every time I see Tom Skerritt in a movie. He's one of those people like um, like M. Emmett Walsh, one of those character actors who's like, you just know their face. And every time they show up, like, oh, I love you. You're great. Well, <laughs> I don't care if you're only going to be in this movie for like two minutes. You're, you're going to be good in it at least. What's that? Oh, man, I used to know. The deep, super baritone cowboy with the mustache. Uh, Sam Elliott. Sam Elliott. Yeah. It's kind of like that. Well, as soon as he comes in, you're like, I know exactly what to expect, and it's going to yes. be awesome. <laughs> there is a movie, like even a recent movie, where he was in it and he had shaved his mustache. Mm. I was like, whoa. Like, you're not allowed to do it's that. Like you're not Selleck. supposed to be mustacheless. No. 
It's a front, not a front. Yeah. You're not you're, you're not Sam Elliott. He's but and that's the thing. He plays the uh, son that I can't stand watching in this. So mm-hmm. uh, Tom Skerritt, not Sam Elliott. So uh, I don't know. I didn't even but recognize him. He's also an alien. So <laughs> he, does, he does a good job there. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. It was uh, it's hard to talk about everybody. Uh, Carl Malden. Oh, Carl Malden oh. was in Streetcar Named Desire. Yeah. Yes, that's okay. Sorry, thank. You. I was like, I know there is a streetcar reference here, but um, yeah, and he's in um on the waterfront, on the Colliana waterfront. Yes. And, yeah, so he was he's a big deal. This movie was both written and directed by Blake Edwards. So as we've been mentioning here, Blake Edwards has a pretty varied career. The sixties were pretty good with him, critically and financially. Directs Breakfast at Tiffany's, directs Days of Wine and Roses, which almost bankrupts a studio, <laughs> uh, and then writes and directs The Pink Panther and A Shot in the Dark. As far as this movie, like he was just coming off of a movie called Darling Lily, starring his wife, Julie Andrews. As I said, there's literally nothing I could find about this movie. So what I decided to do, because the machine forces me to write these every week. I take so much pleasure watching you sweat. So George Morris, a film critic, describes Edwards as a director who dealt in themes of the disappearance of gallantry and honor, the tension between appearances and reality and the emotional, spiritual, moral, and psychological disorder. So his point being, he definitely switched between absolute comedy and dramatic pictures. But George Morris also acknowledges that there are critics of Edwards' style. And he says, It has been difficult for many critics to accept Blake Edwards as anything more than a popular entertainer. Edwards' detractors acknowledge his formal skill, but deplore the absence of profundity in his movies. Edwards' movies are slick and glossy, but their shiny surfaces reflect all too accurately the disposable values of contemporary life. Wow. That's quite a... How long did it take for him to edit that thing down? (laughs) This movie was designed to be an epic, originally conceived to be a three-hour runtime. Once turned in, MGM cut out large portions of the narrative, uh, much to Edwards' dismay. He actually disowned the film. He wanted his name to actually be taken off of it. So he got into like a real Elaine May situation. But he didn't go to court or arbitration or anything like that. Well, he's a man, so he got to make movies after. So good for him. Yes, that's exactly right. He is a man, so he got to make movies for another 25 years. I don't know. Do we need what to keep I talking? Want oh, yeah. to, well, there's one thing that is only tangentially related to this movie, but I think it is worth bringing up here at this point and something that we can kind of keep coming back to, which is the myth of the cowboy. Are you familiar with this? Uh, formally, no, but there is a myth. Okay. Yeah. There is a myth. So this has been something that a lot of writers have been writing about for the last, I don't know, probably like decades now at this point, but really coming to prominence now because of when we think cowboy... At least here in the West. Probably. Right. Well, yeah. But like nowadays, it'd probably be someone who's a MAGA supporter. Mm -hmm. But I think the first people you're going to think about are going to be Clint Eastwood or John Wayne, you know, someone who is white, rough and tumble. Like that's the the idea that we have. The lone wolf. The lone wolf. Yes. That is not what cowboys were pretty much at all. So this is from a fairly recent article that appeared in the Saturday Evening Post called The Making of the Cowboy Myth, written by Tim Lehman. I'm just going to read the first two paragraphs here, um, and they're short, but I definitely recommend like reading into it and the actual history of it. He starts it off by saying, It is rare to find cowboys on the silver screen who spend much time performing the humdrum labor, herding cattle, that gave the profession its name. Westerns suggest that cowboys are gun-toting men on horseback, riding tall in the saddle, 
unencumbered by civilization and, in Teddy Roosevelt's words, embodying the hardy and self-reliant type who possessed the manly qualities that are invaluable to a nation. But real cowboys who worked long cattle drives in lonely places like Texas mostly led lives of numbing tedium, usually on the fringes of society. They were the formerly enslaved poor farm boys, the downtrodden Native Americans. They enjoyed little autonomy on the trail. It was Hollywood and men like Roosevelt who whitewashed the cowboy, elevating him to the epitome of personal freedom, manly courage, and rugged independence. So the Highland idea is that the majority of cowboys were, yes, either like slaves, maybe white poor farmhands and Native Americans, but definitely two of those are really never seen as far as like fitting the cowboy archetype. And I think that is interesting to talk about in, in, a, in a broader way. You know, America doesn't have a long history, at least a colonial America. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have a mythology. And, you know, I think one of the cornerstones of culture and uh, identity is we need mythology to kind of ground our sense of uh, cohesiveness and togetherness and all this stuff. So we have a problem in Canada where we say like, what does it mean to be Canadian? And right. a lot, I, you know, it used to mean something a little bit more, not synchronous, but like people used to agree a little bit more about whatever, right? But nowadays it's it's difficult and we split by province, we split by city. In America, you have a lot of people that uh, generally don't like each other. You know, we have like the East, the North, the South, the West, everybody's got beef with somebody because the cultures are so dramatically different depending on the environment you grow in, depending on urbanization, depending on everything. So it's interesting, like I have read something similar about cowboys too, Uh, not anything so specific and academic, but you know, like everything, (laughs) like samurais, for example, samurais are not these, again, cowboy archetypes, right? They don't go around with their swords and killing bad guys. Uh, They were indentured. Uh, I mean, they're still an aristocracy sort of thing, but um, you know, they're people. Movies, as we're learning with the control of the FBI and the very intentional culling of negative archetypes in this era, I guess they chose cowboys as cowboys and soldiers. I mean, what else What else comes out of this era? And maybe some detectives, but they killed film noir for this because, you know, as soon as you start doing crime, you know, you get murky. It gets very gray. Talking about code in a different context like the hollywood code that came into being in like the early 1930s like if you were a criminal you could have to be an absolute criminal right if you were a cop you had to be absolutely good there was really no shades of gray like you would expect in most fiction nowadays where it's like well maybe this person had a point in what they were committing none of that is actually going to be available allowed i think the cowboy fiction was able to right into there and like fill that void too because you like have like those are the villains these are the good people like the people with white hats are good the people with the black hats are bad and um as you see in the 70s there's a little bit of a push here to try and play around with those archetypes a little bit and and change that out uh but what is i think almost would probably have been a bridge too far at this time might even be a bridge too far now if you really try to but like can you imagine someone making a cowboy movie and maybe it's been done and i'm just not aware of it but can you imagine someone making a cowboy movie released by a major studio into theaters being like yeah all of our cowboys are going to be black or native american Hmm. well i mean there are yeah black cowboy westerns but they play into the same archetypes where it's like they're here they're superheroes so they just replace the same story uh, with different contextualization because they're speaking to a different audience but at the end of the day they're 
there is a bad guy, usually, you know, some landowner piece of shit, and they have to go and uh, fight for their freedom. So it does work uh, within the same archetype. But yeah, like a, a film, it would be a documentary. That's why people don't watch documentaries. Like, yeah. you know, a bunch of uh, guys are living in, in a hut and every morning they wake up at the break of dawn, eat some corn meal, and then go and wrangle, not even wrangle, just like push cows uh, walking through grazing lands and then come back at uh, dusk and uh, go to sleep. Why, why don't we have a half and half where it is a fiction film, but it's narrated by Ken Burns. <laughs> and so then we can really play around with that, that those archetypes. Uh, this is the thing about uh, entertainment and reality. You know, what is the point? What is the purpose of, of entertainment? And I, yeah, you know, novelization, I mean, like written word, has a better opportunity when you reach readers to deal with these themes in a broad context. But if you've got an hour or two hours to put something together, it's hard to break through. And, that, and that's why we're in sort of an intention generation where nobody actually wants to anymore. They just want to lay back and have somebody shine lights in their face and then come out and discuss something that they already understand. So I don't know. Well, I have this like paradoxical thought. I am like this big proponent of inclusivity in media, right? Like if you are shooting in New York City, it's kind of weird if you only have white people walking on mm. the sidewalks because mm. that doesn't feel real anymore. Or if we are going to do a Western, why not have something that's going to be like essentially like historically accurate as far as the people that are there? On the flip side, I actually feel that like realism is held as like too much of a lofty goal a lot of times and mostly like dramas. Like I, I don't know how many articles or like posts I read. It's like, well, no one would say it in this way. Or it's like, why do why do people talk like this on the phone in movies? And it's because, well, because if you did it actually realistically, it'd be boring as shit. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, you're right. No one talks on a phone the way they really talk on a phone because how people talk on the phone isn't interesting to listen to. So, of course, you're going to jazz it up a bit with language. So, I don't know. There's like that thing is like, yeah, let's adhere to that reality. But we can play around loosey-goosey with the actual like what is actually happening in the in the film itself. Yeah, there's a problem, I think, with, yeah, just human perception in general, which is that we always have to balance extremes. So if you want a good guy that stands out or a good person, they have to be an extreme idealized version of it. Otherwise, they just blend into ambiguity. Nobody nobody will see them. And then on mm -hmm. the flip side, if you have a an evil person, the extreme is like we're talking about with this code era. They've got to have the uh, oily mustache and the black hat and, you know, wear a, a cravat. And as we blur those lines and we come into this generation of the anti-hero and the justification of uh, violence when there's good cause, you know, the 70s and 80s became a bit of a murky moral time where, you know, we, we got confused, I think. Um, mm -hmm. But we do get some interesting movies that come out of that. And then leading into the 90s and when we did 99, we saw, I think, the peak you know, we get The Matrix and Fight Club and and Boys Don't Cry. We get a great actual sort of ambiguous conversation about questioning reality. And then the 2000s until now is uh, like the Avengers are trying to do that. They're trying, you know, they introduce them as super superheroes and then they try to dirty them up. And by right. the end, nobody even knows what the fuck's going on anymore. Everybody's dying. Um, they well, got I lost think that's in the it heart. Again, so. I, I mean, I think that is... The hard thing, whereas we in a modern society in the year 2021 crave those uh, shades of gray. Like we want our heroes and villains to be a little bit like complicated and dirty. 
And I think there's a lot of like antecedents that fed into that ideal. At the same time, this is my impression, my feeling, which is I think we are all kind of craving for like, I just want someone to be standing up and be like, good. I just want to be that. I just want to rally around this person who's like legitimately like a good person and can just do the stuff that I want to get done. And I think that's why we sometimes put our false hope in under politicians or why we make our whole personalities under a specific actor or property because like, oh, like these are, this is the one, this is like the good thing, the good person. And then when they do a misstep or you realize that they are people, then they're like your whole worldview collapses in on itself. We talked about this last year. I can't remember why, but I had been reading or YouTubing something about cult mentality and how, you know, when you have an individual, but it's usually like a group of people that have uh, <laughs> not necessarily a psychological deficiency, but, you know, let's say a weak sense of self. And like mm -hmm. you're bringing up, they see something very shiny and an embodiment of what they want to believe is an ideal. And then they define themselves by that ideal. So with MAGA, there might be some people that miss what they believe America to be. And there's going to be some people that see Trump as the embodiment of everything that used to be great about 80s America, you know, whatever the definition is. Right. The extremists are the ones that tie their personal sense of worth and identity to that concept. And so when the concept breaks down, they have nothing left and they become extremists. And I think we see that in all cultural uh, formations. Like, you know, I know lots of Muslim people that are super cool. You get this one guy in the news that wants to do something crazy. Asian people, the same thing. You get uh, a swath of very medium, normal Buddhists. And then you'll get a story about somebody who's like starved themselves, set themselves on fire. It's, you know, there's like, it's just a weird thing when you go to an extreme in any case. And uh, America's right. struggling for this. They don't have like, a, yeah, they don't have a good mythology. They don't have a good sense of cultural personality. Um, luckily, like, yeah, you know, luckily, white people have done nothing bad, so I don't have any <laughs> into this. But I, uh, I mean, America is like the easiest one to like throw into the bus in this okay, conversation. Yeah. But because I mean, we're sitting in Canada, and I think we're actually having our own yes. reckoning with this right now. Like, hey, yeah, what does it mean to be Canadian? But also, all the things that we used to think were Canadian and Canadian values might not be exactly what we always thought they were. No. Uh, especially when you're uncovering mass graves on a weekly basis. Yeah, I, and the, and these are all obviously nuanced conversations too. I mean, the concept behind residential schools is, yeah, it's colonial at its worst. It's it's disgusting. But the reality too of, you know, mass mass graves, uh, Canada's not the only place that has mass graves, sure. right? Um, we are, we're dealing with our own ghosts, which is a problem. And, you know, uh, at, in a less dramatic and problematic sense, like, Having come from Toronto, it's like what a Torontonian thinks a Canadian is, is vastly different than what an Albertan thinks being Canadian is, even though it should be very similar. And I think maybe in the 70s or uh, whenever Trudeau you know, got us out of the Dominion, it was probably a little bit more of a simple line because there's a lot of propaganda that's going to go from seceding from a monarchy. Sure. But now, yeah, I mean, sometimes I hear things that people say in Calgary and I'll be taken aback. And sometimes I'll hear somebody say something and I'll be like, you know, 10 years ago when I was living uh, somewhere else, I would be offended, but now I kind of agree with it. It's weird. It's mm. it's become a bit of a, a blob, you know? We get yeah. too many outside influences. Uh, there's too much new news. I, I was annoyed the other day. <laughs> 
that uh, BIPOC uh, basically highlights black and indigenous and then everybody else is POC, which is fascinating, right? right? Um, you know, LGBTQ is struggling because they've got to now add so many new acronyms because- Well, that's what I was going to say. Like that's sometimes a fight there. It's like, you no, know, it's, it's almost too many letters yeah. in, in that acronym. Yeah. And even- and this is human nature, like, you know, learning about how, let's say, transgender people suffer even at the hands of other, you know, queer yeah. folks. Uh, Asians are the same way, black people are the same way. You know, there, there's so many varying- Hierarchies within the yeah. subgroup, yeah. So, w what is that truly? I mean, now we get into philosophy, which is defining human nature and- uh, Well, unfo the unfortunate part is that this conversation is so much more fascinating than the actual movie we watched. Oh, we watched a movie? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're done here. So let's do this. The, the the machine has told us that we should wrap this up. Um, we were just about to solve it too. You, know, yeah, like you ruined this, it. We were just about to solve human nature. Almost there, Fuck. but the, the, the machine, you know, uh, this movie is boring and people shouldn't watch it. But here, let's go to Critics' Choice. Pauline Kael did not review this movie, so I could not find Because she has self-respect. Yep. Yeah. Here, uh, Roger Ebert actually liked this movie. But I thought it was actually really fascinating what he wrote about this. So I'm just going to read the opening and closing paragraph. And he says, The Wild Rovers is a beautiful, dumb cowboy movie about two beautiful, dumb cowboys. The most beautiful and dumbest is Ryan O'Neill. William Holden is beautiful too, but in the way that when you look at Louis Armstrong, you say, he's a really beautiful man. Uh, sorry, he's really beautiful, man. There's a comma there. I was going to say that that yeah. that turned uh, that <laughs> yeah. turned a little brutal. Ryan O'Neill is beautiful in the other way and has no business in a cowboy movie. He is also dumb in that he radiates no intelligence in the direction of the camera. William Holden is dumb in the sense that he plays a dumb, sincere old cowhand, not unlike the character he created in The Wild Bunch, only gentler. Which is to say that William Holden is very good in The Wild Rovers and Ryan O'Neill is a distraction. The movie's problems are with Ryan O'Neill, who seems just a shade too delighted to be Ryan O'Neill, and with the fatalistic conclusion. Too many recent movies have been depending on the death of their heroes to pull them through. It used to be daring to kill your hero, now it's an act of artistic originality to let him live. I thought that was actually the most fascinating thing he wrote about, because we've watched two westerns and both of them, they get killed at the end. Which is a little bit different than what the normal western is. Uh, but if that's the only thing that you're betting on, like, oh, this is how my movie's going to stand out. It's like, okay, but what else? I used to proclaim that I loved, I mean, I, I do love Die Hard um, so much because it, it was, to me, the first film where a superhero good guy is actually mm -hmm. kind of just an ordinary guy, gets his ass yeah. kicked, steps on glass, and somehow, you know, with duct tape, is able to overcome a trained terrorist militia. Mm -hmm. uh, as it turns out, this is just another step in something that had been growing in Hollywood for probably you know fifteen years prior to that film. Right. Um, so to your point, uh, it is interesting as we watch more and more of these films how this is kind of par for the course. You know they're struggling with this mythology of what a good guy is supposed to be. But uh, and this is something with you and Ebert far too apologist. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I like William Holden in this, but. This is just a bad movie in its entirety. Ryan O'Neill is the worst part for sure. But, yeah. Um, but I, I think that you can still enjoy things in a movie that you don't like. And I and I always am trying to find, is there something that I do enjoy about this? Again, this is the gradations of like this a million dollar duck. Million dollar duck is a worthless pile of crap. Sure. And this at least has a couple of things like, well, at least there's this in this movie while the rest of it is very bad. You know what this movie has? It has like a five minute segment 
focus, zooming in slowly on William Holden's face from seven different angles as he has a quiet internal existential crisis lying in bed with a prostitute. Yes. And, and why? 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 I know. Why? I agree. I enjoyed the, the, the five minutes of him breaking that horse and like <laughs> Ryan O'Neill doing stupid somersaults yeah, and like it's, squealing. It's wheel. Yeah. And they have this like campy slow music. Slow motion. Oh. Yeah, way too much slow motion for a movie that was way too slow. Um, yeah, I I don't know. Yeah, speed it up, man. Yeah. Do a, do a speed. If you're ramp. gonna shoot a guy, just shoot a guy. Uh, we don't need to have that. Uh. Also, one of the comedic death scenes with the uh, and the collapse. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it, which is kind of funny. Uh, the 45 seconds, the only 45 seconds I actually liked in the uh, after the intermission. By the way, is right after the card game and there's the shootout and people are getting killed off and stuff. Yes. That section I was like, oh, this is this is picking up. And then it just went back to like them riding on the trail again for if that scene wasn't long, so long random, time. yeah. You right. could build a movie around that. But that's right. It comes out of but nowhere. It did not. Yeah. You get a pretty cool uh shooting thing. Yeah. Although it's a little a little overplayed. Super fake orange blood, but yeah. whatever. And then we get with the eye movements, like it becomes a little bit silly mm -hmm. you know with the other gamblers i'm pretty sure most humans bleed orange blood do they not pauline kale was not available this week so instead i went to of, of all places cleveland and from the cleveland <laughs> press we have tony mastroianni uh this is very short it's one sentence there is natural simplicity and then there is a contrived simplicity that kind of yells out at you and says hey look how simple and low-key this is he didn't like this movie by the way yeah yeah <laughs> Which I kind of agree with, which is like, it does feel like I am, I'm being uh, slow and plotting because epics are slow and plotting sometimes with, while forgetting that the reason some people, me included, like those grand epics is because it's filled with characters that I enjoy watching. Let me ask you this question. This or Nicholas and Alexandra? Oh, that is actually hard. I think I'm reading them the same thing. So, but if I had to choose... I would 100% watch Nicholas and Alexandra. I was going to say, yeah. I think I would tip it over to Nicholas and Alexandra. Yeah. I think I would rather watch that again than this. That's, that's how you know this movie sucks. At least there isn't ex exit music. Why do I need exit music for? <laughs> I mean, there's an intermission in, in Nicholas and Alexandra, them, yeah. but you get, you get mo way more interesting you moments. Get, at least you get Tom Baker. You get Tom at the Baker, very least, you have Tom Baker. You get that, the, the conclusion is fascinating. Yeah. And, uh, and the, the uh, set pieces and the design costumes, great. You know, the mustaches look very nice, very clean. True. Yeah. They do look like who they're supposed to look like. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, Dave, it has come time. We do need to rate this movie. I mean, before we do, I suppose, that is what Dave and I thought about Wild Rovers. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. You can also find us on YouTube, by the way. So if you are a YouTube viewer, go and watch our videos over there. Uh, and if you love uh, Death in Vienna, no, Death in Venice. <laughs> Death in, I always yeah, say that you always wrong. say Vienna. De Death in Venice. Death in Venice. Yep. If you like Death in Venice, or what's the other one we've been getting hate messages on? <laughs> like all of them. Uh, Billy, Billy Jack. Jack. So if, if you like Billy Jack, go. And if you don't like those movies, go on in there and say that. So that it's like, but <laughs> <We're, laughs> it doesn't seem like everyone is yelling at us all the time. We're under a little bit, but we're getting some subscribers because we're holding firm. Good. Yeah, we're holding yeah. firm. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page, letterboxd.com slash KDBSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. 
There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar per month. Of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So we are going to get into the ratings for this movie. Dave, what would you give Wild one. Rovers out of five? Yeah, oh, one. God. Yeah, one. I'll right. tell you why it's a one. I mean, you're right. There are moments that should supersede a one. But just looking back at the movies, uh, like we just talked about Nicholas Alexandra mm-hmm. and how much I disliked so many parts of this, I can't go above it because I don't think there's anything redeeming about it. I didn't appreciate even the cinematography like you're talking about. It didn't speak to me. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are worse movies out there. Million Dollar oh, yeah. Duck, like, but we couldn't give it a zero. That would have been maybe even in the negatives. Uh, so for me, I'm, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a, sourpuss and go with the I one gotcha. again i did also not like this movie again a few of those 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 three things they mentioned at the very beginning are enough to bump this up a little bit but it's still not a movie i would ever recommend anyone watch i am giving it a two nice that's pretty low for you out yeah. of five it is yeah which does mean that it is going to be entering our list at the number 22 position good well, we're going to continue on this lone, dusty trail here in space, Dave. Let me just push this button here and see what we're going to be watching next week. Oh, the very first time we get to watch something from The Duke. So we're going from uh, alcoholic and coke fiend to a racist. This is going to be That's great. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah our, it's our first John Wayne movie. We're going to be watching Big Jake. Mm, we're going to watch Big Jake. Never heard of it. One of his last movies that he, that he made. It has to be great, right, Dave? Yeah. Old John Wayne. I hope, yeah, I hope that we see him uh, like super old and geriatric, but with like a 20-year-old stunt double who like rolls off a horse and shoots five guys in the face. It's going to be great. Like in this wait. movie yeah. where it's like obviously not William Holden <laughs> on the back of that horse when he's doing stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Can't wait, partner. By the way, we are still housing all of those people in the back from last episode. So we should probably like drop them off here pretty soon. Um so well, let's, uh, uh, let's take the next next exit here when, whenever it comes up. Oh, he already built the church. I think we should let him stay. Yeah. Well, I guess we should go break a horse then. If, if that's what they're calling it now. Yeah. I'd like you to stay in your lane so that I could run you over.